Malachi 2, 1 through 4. This is the word of God. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Lord, I would hazard a guess that that is not necessarily the text that's on everyone's favorite verse list. But Father, you are holy. You are right. You are good and glorious. And what we don't understand and what we don't naturally love, we ask you to make us able to see and rejoice in. Protect us. Bring us to repentance. Grow us. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. When we started through Matthew, we saw, especially during that final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, that the Savior presented a series of parables that really dramatically showed us the way that the nation of Israel had earned for themselves the judgment of God. And one of those parables involves a landowner, a vineyard, and a group of wicked tenants. Do you guys remember that one? It's in Matthew 22, 33 and following. We're not going to turn there, but the story Jesus tells goes a little bit like this. There was a wealthy man. He was a landowner. He planted a vineyard, and he leased it to tenants. And their job was to tend the vineyard and then give to the owner a portion of the produce, right? They can use the land, they can benefit from the land, but they, they owe the owner some of the, some of the produce. But over the time, the tenants decided that they did not want to obey the rules of the owner, and they stopped paying the owner, and they took the profits for themselves, And whenever the owner sent people to collect his due, the tenants would beat those men, and they even killed many of those men. And eventually the owner sent his own son, and he sent that son to collect what the owner was owed, and the tenants killed the owner's son. And at the end of the story, Jesus asked the crowd, what do you think the owner is going to do to those evil, disobedient tenants? You guys know, right? All the people listening knew the owner would return and he would put to death the evil men who killed his son and his servants and refused to follow the terms of their agreement with the landowner. That's a familiar story, right? That story from Jesus is an illustration of what had happened and what was happening in the nation of Israel at that time. See, the people of God were represented in the story by the tenants. They had a kindly master, the Lord God. God had given them a land. God had made them into a nation. God had prospered them as a people. And yes, the Lord did require certain obedience from the people of Israel. And the terms of the obedience that was required, those terms were spelled out where? In the law of God. 
I want you to be sure about this. Remember, on multiple occasions, the nation of Israel, the people of God, willingly agreed to the terms of the covenant. Right? In, in, in Exodus 19, and in Exodus, following that section, there were three separate places where they, the people agreed to be bound by the covenant of God. That included the terms of the covenant, it included the law, it included blessings for right behavior, it included curses for disobedience to God, and they said, yes, we will buy into this agreement. And when Israel refused to obey the terms of the covenant God made with them as a nation, because you know they weren't obedient, right? What did God do? God sent people to the nation to remind them of what they were supposed to be doing. You know what we call the people God sent to remind the nation of the covenant and to warn them against disobedience? You know what we call those people? Prophets. And they were illustrated by the people that the master sent to collect from the tenants, right? The job of the Old Testament prophet is not what many people think a prophet's job is. Pay attention to this. It was not primarily the job of the prophet to predict far-off future events. Be honest. How many of you, when you hear about the prophets, think about people predicting things hundreds and even a thousand years in the future? That's what we think of, right? Oh, he's prophesying. He's seeing the future. And sometimes they did. But mostly the prophets at the direction of God communicated to the people where they were in violation of the law of God. And then the prophets reminded the people of what God had promised would be the consequences if they continued to disobey. And the the prophets told them the promises of blessing if they would return to obedience. So the prophets were like good law enforcement officers. That They reminded the people, hey, don't break that rule. If you keep breaking that rule, you're going to be in trouble, and here's how. They pointed out that people would have consequences if they continue to break the law of God. Well, Malachi was a prophet of God. He had been sent by God to remind the people of God of their duty, their job description, if you will. And in the section that we studied this morning... Malachi is playing the role of the prophet and in reminding the people of God, of the law of God, that they had agreed that they would follow. And then he reminded them of the consequences of failing to obey the law of God. Now let me ask you, just sitting here this morning, does that sound harsh to you? Doesn't like, I don't like that thing. Stop and think. The people, they weren't about to violate the law of God. They have been violating The law of God. God could have judged them instantly and been completely just to do so. But here in Malachi, God warns the people of their failings. And included in that warning, implicit in that warning, is God inviting the people to return. This is not harsh. This is kind Gloriously, wonderfully kind. God places in front of the people two paths. 
one path leads to destruction. And God identifies that for them. You walk down this path, you're going to die. The other path leads to life and to blessing. And God offers it when he warns them to turn. This morning, let's watch. God is going to speak to the people of old. And let's also see where that message to men in the 5th century B.C. applies to you and me too. So the first point, there are really going to be two points this morning. The first one is just going to be this. This is the call to live as a priesthood. The first point, number one, is the call to live as a priesthood. Look at verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. So we're picking up the text. I'm going to remind you uh, again where we've been. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. God, through Malachi, reminded the nation of his faithfulness to them. God kept his promise as part of the bargain that he had made with Israel. He chose Israel to be his people. He judged the Edomites who had opposed Israel. God loved Israel. God had been faithful to Israel. But then in, one, in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 1, God showed that the priests of Israel were dishonoring God's name. How? The priests were not taking God's worship seriously. They were offering unworthy sacrifices. They were giving God less than their best. And they were pretending like that ought to be good enough for God. And it was a violation of the terms of the covenant God had made with Israel, particularly as concerns the sacrificial system. God is great. God's honor, his glory is the most important thing in the world. And the priests and the people needed to understand that they cannot trifle with God. They are to fear God. They are to honor God. And here comes chapter 2. And now God says that what he is saying, he's saying to the priests. The priests are the guilty ones. They're the ones that have to lead the return of the people to faithful worship. God is going to call for a return now to a faithful priesthood. Now, this leads us to a little, little homework, a little question. You've got to work with me here a little bit. What are priests? In the Old Testament, the priests were the men who had the right to go to God on behalf of other people. They bore the responsibility to teach people and lead them in obedience to the word of God. Priests cared for the items of the tabernacle or the temple. They guarded the things of God from an unholy people. And the priests interceded on behalf of the people. They served as a protective barrier between the people and the dangerous holiness of God because you know, don't you, that when people in the Old Testament days, if they touched the holy things, they would die. So priests were like a barrier, a go-between between the people and God. And the priests would perform the acts of worship that the people weren't allowed to perform. Though the priests are supposed to guard the temple and present holy offerings before the Lord, the priests of Malachi's day didn't do so. They've been casual about worshiping God, and that allowed the nation as a whole to be flippant about holy things. And we can see that God is going to focus his attention on the priests. Now, before you and I see what God says to those men, we need to take a moment to look at this from a New Testament perspective. See, if we don't, all this will be 
is a semi-interesting look at some things that were wrong with the people from nearly 2,500 years ago. And some of you would be interested in that, right? Sure, I like studying history. But is that, are you here for a history lesson today? No. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a, listen to this, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So there God hinted to the nation of Israel that they would become a nation of priests. If Israel would obey God's commands in the Old Testament days, they would be a people of God who would influence other nations toward the Lord. In Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which Marcel read for us earlier, God said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor saying and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Good word right there. But think about this. God promised a new covenant. And in that covenant, God promised that they would be a people who would have the law of God written not just on a book, but on their hearts. And the people have to be in the new covenant, the promised nation of priests. Because all these people know the Lord personally. They're not about having a go-between who goes to God for them. They don't need priests to teach them the law of God because all those people have access to God and, and the law of God on their hearts. So again, keep thinking with me. How in the world would that happen? Well, who's going to be the promised nation of priests? All of the priesthood in the Old Testament, all of the law in the Old Testament had a purpose. All of the law and the priesthood in the Old Testament served as a dim shadow, a reminder, or a pointer to the true holy priesthood. All the sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament served not to purchase anybody's forgiveness. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointers to the one sacrifice that would cover the sins of the people of God. The blood of animals in the Old Testament was a testimony of the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a copy of the true holy place in heaven where the blood of Jesus would be offered to cover the sins of everyone God would ever forgive. The Lord Jesus is himself both the sacrificial lamb who pays for the sins of God's children and the true high priest who offers that blood going to God for others. So, 
If Jesus is the true high priest, and he is, who serves as the nation of priests? Is that for physical Israel alone? No. The nation of priests is a nation of people from every nation on earth who are under the grace of God in Jesus Christ as part of the new covenant. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. Jason read those for us this morning. You yourselves, like living stones, Peter talking to Christians, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, are you with me still? Both Peter and the Apostle John said that Christians, the saved, the church, we are that promised kingdom of priests. We are the recipients of the new covenant. All who are genuinely part of the church by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ have no need of a special class of spiritual leaders to go to God on our behalf. The people of God as a group constitute a kingdom of priests. See, one of the things that was recovered during the Protestant Reformation was the recovery of the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And that teaches us that believers don't need other people to serve as priests or go-betweens to approach God on their behalf. You might think to yourself, well, that's obvious. But look around the world and ask, is it? Many religions would say that there is a special class of person that has access to God and accesses God for you. That is true inside the Roman Catholic Church. That is true inside many other groups out there that would say that I need to go to the holy person so the holy person can intercede to God on my behalf. I don't worship. I get someone to perform the act of worship for me. But friends, there is no such thing as a Christian who is a priest and one who's not. There's no such thing as a Christian with access to God and one without. There's no such thing as a special class of Christian who has the right to approach God and one who doesn't. Neither is there any such thing as a Christian who lacks the responsibility of a priest in the New Testament. All Christians serve under the high priestly service of the Lord Jesus. He's the high priest. All Christians approach God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. 
But together, all Christians make up one nation, all priests. We're not individually a priest of our own religion. No, no, no. But we as a collective are a nation of priests who offer worship to the holy God. Now, unlike Old Testament priests, we make no blood sacrifices for our sin or for the sin of others. Why? That work's been done. It's been taken care of by Jesus. There was one offering. It's been made. But like priests of every generation, we go to the Lord in prayer. We tell those who don't know the Lord about his word and his ways. And we participate in the true worship of God. Now you might be thinking, okay, why, Travis, did you feel the need to give me a lecture about priests? I want you to hear the call in the word of God to serve as priests to our God. You should not hear what God says to the priests in Malachi's day and think to yourself, boy, I'm glad I have nothing to learn here. I don't want you to hear this and think that it only applies to a special class of religious leaders. Oh, that's for the pastors. That's for the elders. That's for the grand poobahs in the church. No, no, no. This is for you if you are a Christian. Because you're part of the nation of priests. And you get to approach God through Jesus all on your own. And you do not go through me. Aren't you glad about that? Now, what Malachi says here is not a perfect one-to-one expression of every duty that every Christian has. Again, we don't offer animal sacrifices. But as we see the role of priests, we can learn things that God wants his people in Christ still to do and still to be. So we're going to go further. What we're going to see is a warning for the priests of Malachi's day this morning. Then the next time I preach, we're going to see, Lord willing, and a clearer understanding of the roles which the priests were to play. And they will apply to us because many of the roles that are mentioned here in 2, 1 through 9 apply to us very well. But right now, we're only going to make point number two here. And then we'll do a second part of this sermon uh, in a couple of weeks. Okay? So point number two, the first was the call to live as a priest. The second one is the consequences of failure. Malachi 2, 2 to 4 says, If you will not listen, if you will not take, to, take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. So God, can you all all get the sense already that this is a fairly strong warning? If these priests... In Malachi's day, will not listen to the Lord and his word, something's going to happen. If they won't obey the command of God to give honor to God's name, they are facing a major problem. Verse 2, God tells the priests, if they will not honor his name, he will send the curse upon them. What's he talking about when he says, I'll send the curse? Well, what did I tell you in the introduction? Prophets do. Do prophets primarily predict the future like psychics? 
No, they're not fortune tellers. What more often happens is that prophets remind the people of God of the truths that had already been revealed in the law of God or revealed by other prophets. God's law promised Israel blessing for obedience. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 3 says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. And I could keep going, but for several more verses, it just keeps saying, you'll be blessed here, you'll be blessed there, you'll be blessed here, you'll be blessed there. If you obey me, it's everywhere. God declares, I will bless and prosper an obedient nation of Israel. But then God also said in the giving of the law, what will happen if they turn their backs on his word and ways? In Deuteronomy 28, 15 and 16, it says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Curse shall you be in the city and curse shall you be in the field. The blessings of God on Israel for obedience also carry parallel curses for disobedience. What's a blessing? It's the giving of life and goodness. What's a cursing? It's the opposite. Now, remember, Israel agreed time and time and time again to that law. They agreed to be bound by those terms so that God would be their God and they would be God's people. And in Malachi 2, God is telling the priest that if they do not repent, if they do not give themselves to properly honoring the name of God, they are going to find out about the curse that God promised. God told the priest, I'm going to curse your blessings. By the way, just so you know, there's a real debate over how that should be interpreted. What might it mean? It might mean that God is saying God will curse the things that the priests consider to be their blessings. Whatever they like. The things they think are good things in their lives. God says, I'm going to sour them. So maybe this is God telling them they're going to lose the things they enjoy, like nice homes, nice clothes, nice food, such things. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that God might be saying that I'm going to curse the things that you try to declare blessing over. Right? Because the priests of God had the responsibility to pronounce a blessing from God over the nation. Numbers 6, 22 to 27. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, that's the priests, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. That's a familiar passage, isn't it, for some of you? It's possible that what God's telling the priests is if they refuse to worship God rightly and lead the people rightly to worship God, if they will not glorify God, then God will refuse to bless what the priests bless. Instead of his face shining upon the people over whom the priest pronounced the blessing, God's disfavor is going to fall on those people. After all, the priests were going to God on behalf of the people, but the priests were going with, with empty, sinful hearts. But if the priests don't do their job, the people are rightly going to suffer those consequences. So, which interpretation is it? My first answer is, I don't know. Either one could, could, could be just fine. 
My guess is that God is here saying he's going to curse personally the priests and the, the, the luxuries that they're living in. I'm going to curse your blessings. But again, either would work. The priests need to know this. The word of God's going to hold true here. The Lord will be faithful to his covenant. God cannot be faithful to the covenant if he does not bring judgment on the priests for their unfaithfulness to his name. Then the end of verse 2 says that God already knows in this case the priests are not going to repent. They're already cursed because they won't take his words to heart. Then comes verse 3. And God uses a fairly graphic picture to show the priests what kind of danger that they're in. Now, I've got to tell you a story about this. A few years ago, and by a few years, I mean 20 plus, I was in college. It gets longer and longer every time I tell this story. And someone asked me something like what my favorite Bible verse is. I don't like that question because I like the whole Bible. So in a moment of being snarky, I just picked a verse at random. I said, uh, Malachi 2.3. Seemed like a good idea at the time, because I knew nobody knew it. I didn't know it either. The verse reads, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. I don't know that that needed to be my favorite. Um, but, you know. What's that verse say? The dung. You guys know what that is, right? The awful, a translation might say, the innards, the guts. It was not clean. wasn't acceptable as most offerings unless the animal was totally offered as a whole burnt offering. This is the nasty contents of the animal's intestines. The guts, the dung. God said that that stuff was so supposed, to be, supposed to be carried outside the camp and burned in an unclean place, according to Exodus 29.14. God tells the priests, I'm about to take that dung and I'm going to smear it on their faces. I'm going to make you priests as unclean as the nastiest parts of the animals that you're sacrificing. And then you priests will need to be carried away with the garbage that I will not accept as an offering. That says it's going to impact you and it's going to impact your offspring because the children of the priests would be influenced by the careless way that their fathers approached the Lord. By the way, fathers, think about that. Your children are impacted by how you approach the Lord. And God tells the people this is all going to be done so that people will know that God's covenant with Levi will stand. God will not let his law be broken. He will always properly deal with sin. He will always do what he has promised for blessing or for cursing, for salvation or for judgment. His his covenant with Levi, his covenant with the priest, his covenant made with the nation is going to stand. He's going to stick to his word. Okay, now let's stop and step back and ask what in the world are you and I supposed to learn from this text? What was true and applicable for the priests of Malachi's day 
which is still true today for people in the age of the new covenant. I'm going to give you three. And what I'll do is I'll work backwards from verse 4 to 3 to 2. So we'll begin where we ended. God is faithful to his word. Amen? Amen. What he promised Levi, he did. Guys, God will always do what he promises. He's going to save the ones he promises to save. He's going to judge the ones he has promised to judge. That was true in Malachi's day. And guess what, y'all? That's true today too, isn't it? Who did God promise to save? John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John 3, 16 through 18, we love those, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Amen. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Those are the clear words of God. God will keep his word. If you have not come to Jesus for salvation, let the fact that God is faithful to his word call you to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation. God has spoken clearly. If you come to Jesus seeking salvation by grace through faith, he will forgive you and make you into a child of God. In fact, you'll find out that God had chosen to make you his child from before the dawn of time. But if you refuse to obey the call of God to turn from your sin, if you refuse to turn from sin and trust completely in Jesus for salvation, you will be judged by God. All believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we serve with the responsibility to carry that message to people in need of salvation all over the world, right? Go into all nations, right? So if you hear this message and you're not under the grace of Christ, all of us, it's not just me, the guy with the microphone, it's all of us, all this kingdom of priests, Together, we urge you, let go of your sin, turn to Jesus, believe, and be saved. Believing Christians, is that not true that you urge all who would hear this to turn from their sins, believe in Jesus, and be saved? Amen. Second, there's a message for the priests that we need to hear. God said he was going to carry away the priests with the dung of their offerings if they would not repent and worship him rightly. Does that apply to us as the priesthood of all believers? (laughs) Is there a New Testament message that might match that? How about in the book of Revelation? John uh, is instructed by Jesus to write letters to a set of churches that existed in Asia Minor. And in that section, do you guys remember what God uses to symbolize each local church? There was a lampstand. Jesus was walking around among these lampstands, these torches, right? And each of those represented a local church. Listen to what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus through John's pen. Revelation 2, verse 5. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So right there, Jesus called the Ephesians. Yes, the same folks Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to. Jesus called the Ephesians to turn back to loving God the way they used to love him. To repent. To return to faithful love. And if they would not repent, Jesus said he was going to remove their lampstand from its place. And that was Jesus telling the Ephesian church, if you as a people will not know and love and follow God, you are going to lose your local church. Now that's not a threat from Jesus that anybody is individually going to lose their personal salvation. Nobody loses salvation once God has given it to them. But it was a promise that a local church that doesn't love the Lord and doesn't love his word will not stand. Those people may continue to be a gathering of people. They might be a wonderful little social club in Ephesus. But the presence of the Lord and the pleasure of the Lord is not going to be in a church that is unfaithful to the holy word of God. Which means, by the way, that the presence of the Lord is going to be in fewer and fewer churches if the Lord doesn't bring about repentance in our nation. The church is going to be harder and harder to find. Let's pray that not be the case. Thirdly, God told the priests in verse 2, they're going to be in trouble if they don't take it to heart to give honor to God's name. That was the theme of a message from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at what it means to fear and honor God, right? That still has to ring in our ears. Honor the name of God. Give God glory. Let me say it one more time, as clearly as I can say it. The glory of God is the highest priority in the universe. God has set the value of his holy name above everything else that he created. As a believer in the Lord Jesus, it is incumbent upon you to look at your own life and see to it that you make it your top priority to honor God in everything you do. Do not ignore the Lord. Do not take him lightly. Do not ignore the Lord's word. Do not be faithless to God's commands. Christians, but you know what this should do? This ought to make you rejoice in the new covenant. We're sinners. We have failed to give God the honor due the name of God. You and I are way too sinful. To give God the full amount of honor he's due. Right? You think you've got enough worship for an infinitely perfect God? No. But thanks be to God, our sin is covered because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the sacrificial substitute. He's the great high priest. And thanks be to God that he chose to grant you and me the perfect righteousness of Jesus if we are his. He, he writes on your record sheet that you have Jesus' perfection. Thanks be to God, he won't cast us away. He won't throw us out with the garbage. We don't obey Jesus to earn his favor. We don't obey Jesus because we fear that he's going to leave us behind. We obey the Lord Jesus because God has forgiven us and because God has changed us. True Christians worship God willingly. Because our hearts rejoice in the glory of God. We worship out of thanksgiving to Jesus for everything he's done. 
God has established the priesthood of all believers. And together we offer the Lord our worship and our very selves. This is what being a Christian is about. You don't offer a sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus could do that. You offer sacrifices of praise. We offer worship. We offer God our very souls, our very lives, our very selves. And we offer ourselves not because we think we can earn God's favor by even doing that. We offer ourselves to God because God has already given us his favor through Jesus Christ. Hear this verse of scripture as we close. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, priesthood of all believers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your word is good. Your love endures forever. We praise you. We plead with you that you would make us genuine God worshipers. We would ask you that this day would be a day in which your name is magnified. Help us see that we cannot pretend that there is a responsibility to worship you that we don't bear. We don't sit back and let others worship you for us. We come to you because of Jesus. Help us now to be priests who honor your name, who worship you faithfully, who take you seriously, who yield to your lives, and who rejoice in the grace of Christ. That's our prayer to a God who is faithful in all his word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.